0: This is Gulf Coast Live from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. The 2023 regular session of the Florida Legislature kicks off next Tuesday. In February, Governor Ron DeSantis released his Framework for Freedom budget proposal totaling a record $114.8 billion, and that includes total reserves in excess of $15 billion. With Republican supermajorities in both the House and Senate, DeSantis is likely to see much of his priority legislation passed during the 60-day session. Such bills include a measure to allow people to carry concealed firearms without a license, a massive expansion of the state's school choice voucher program, more restrictions in K-12, 12 schools and in higher education when it comes to what is and what is not allowed to be taught, including LGBTQ issues, critical race theory, and diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, which have become culture war red meat talking points for DeSantis and other conservatives. Other major legislation to watch includes a proposed revamping of defamation laws aimed at weakening protections for journalists, bills to further crack down on unauthorized immigration, a plan to further shield businesses and insurance companies from costly lawsuits, and a bill to block government investment decisions involving ESG standards—that's environmental, social, and governance standards. Other high-profile legislation includes a bill that would make it easier to impose the death penalty. And just this week, a bill was filed called the Ultimate Cancel act that essentially seeks to end the Florida Democratic Party. And of course, all of this comes against the looming backdrop of Governor DeSantis's prospective bid for the GOP presidential nomination in 2024. Joining me now for a look at what to expect and what it will all mean for Floridians are Florida Gulf Coast University political science professors, Dr. Peter Bergerson and Dr. Roger Green. Gentlemen, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. Always great to have you in studio. Hi, John. Nice to be here. Yeah,
1: thanks, John. Uh, it's great to see you again.
0: And to engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, you can find us on Facebook at WGCU Public Media or on Twitter. We're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So I just wanted to start with that bill filed a couple days ago. I just mentioned the Ultimate Cancel Act. It doesn't mention the Democratic Party by name, but essentially this aims to end the Florida Democratic Party by directing the State Division of Elections to cancel the filings of a political party if that party's platform has ever advocated for or been supportive of slavery or involuntary servitude. And since during the Civil War, we all know Southern Democrats advocated for slavery, that's what it would do. In years past, one could chalk this up to partisan virtue signaling and not really take it seriously, but with those Republican supermajorities in both chambers, is this something we should take more seriously, Peter?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think uh, whether it's successful as far as uh, actual legislation is another uh, issue, but I think it's designed to disrupt and give the impression of disenfranchising not only uh, Democrats but also those who perhaps uh, are swing voters and, uh, in addition, uh, provide confusion over the electoral process.
0: It's just... So out there, Peter, I I have to wonder if a better name for this might have been the Lawyer Enrichment Act, given that this is just most definitely going to end up facing federal challenges.
1: Yeah, absolutely, because the federal constitution uh, has a specific clause regarding a representative government. And so, I, you know, it would really be... uh, Beyond my expectation, uh, possible expectation, that the federal courts would uphold this, but I think they know that in advance, and it's yeah. it's uh, really more of a symbolic gesture again to uh, disenfranchise, disrupt uh, the the voters.
2: I, I agree with Peter wholeheartedly. I, I think this is one of those cases where there's there would be an expectation that it would meet with formidable legal challenges especially at the federal level that it likely wouldn't pass muster in terms of those challenges yet the the sort of the symbolic thrust of it if anything might even be increased just by as a result of the legal controversies over it so i don't think i don't think they care that it's going to fail in terms of legal challenges, they'll still find value in what happens in the aftermath of those.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, something we've been hearing about for months now is this bill to allow people to carry concealed weapons without a permit in Florida. This would also mean people would no longer need to complete a course on gun safety. um, And it's odd because this bill is facing vocal opposition from folks on the right and the left. Roger, why is that? Well, first
2: of all, one of the reasons why there's, I, I mean, I think i think it's more understandable why there would be um, disagreement coming from progressives or people on the left. I mean, the, those, those reasons are fairly consistent over time. From the right, I mean, a couple of sources of the dismay over this. One is that there are actually some Some gun rights, you know, advocates who are angry because they thought what was going to be sought was what's sometimes referred to as constitutional carry, which is that you could openly carry guns without any kind of permit or restrictions, not the sort of this this kind of concealed carry, permitless concealed carry. So that's that's where some of the criticism from the right is coming from. But of course, some of it, too, is coming from the right because, you know, in, in most instances, law enforcement agencies and, and, and administrators are, are, are quite opposed to this, you know, anything that kind of expands the number of guns out there and the manner in which they are being carried in, in a relatively unrestricted fashion. So, so law enforcement typically thought of as kind of, you know, being situated on the right has an uneasy feeling with, with this as well.
0: Yeah, interesting. The Florida Sheriff's Association and the State Police Chief's Association have officially endorsed it, but as you were saying, individual law individual enforcement,
2: law enforcement leaders. E- leaders are are, you know, they just say, well, we're the ones who are going to have to actually deal with this in terms of enforcement at the local level. So I think you
1: also cannot discount the fact that uh, the National Rifle Association and associated groups are very active in presidential campaigns uh, uh both in, in uh, a voting aspect but also in campaign contributions and so uh again whether this actually passes or not uh you you just can't help but think that this uh, uh framework for freedom uh, budget and proposal uh ha- has Uh, One eye on on the presidential campaign.
2: And the NRA has always had unusually strong lobbying strength in Florida. I mean, it's one of the states where it's had the, 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 the greatest impact in terms of, you know, persuading legislators to line up with its agenda.
0: Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, Marion Hammers had yeah, a so national yeah. presence for national, decades. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, taking a step back and looking at the process of crafting the state's annual budget, uh, again, nearly $115 billion budget proposed by DeSantis. But will the task of passing a balanced budget be kind of easier than it's been in years past? And I'm thinking back to when we've had these conversations and we were facing a budget deficit, not the case at all this time around.
2: No, I mean actually they're projecting that in terms of the revenue and and you know fiscal situation we're likely to see a, a relatively healthy situation maybe going through 2026 2025 at least so it's a it's a it's an easier set of tasks that are facing legislators as well as the governor's office in this particular legislative session.
1: I think you also – one of the advantages that Florida has in the budget process is the uh, nearly $10 billion that uh, in federal uh, pandemic assistance is coming in addition to the federal aid in uh, response to the hurricane, uh, uh, Ian, that that we have particularly uh, acute here in southwest Florida. So – um, again, those would be some of the aspects of the budget. Yeah,
0: and uh, Governor DeSantis's proposed uh, tax breaks package is also quite substantial. But do you also see echoes of, of a, a prospective presidential bid there? And I'm thinking specifically about this proposed permanent sales tax ex- exemption on gas stoves. I've never heard anyone complain <laughs> about that. Um, I, I hear a lot of concerns about affordable housing, food insecurity, but I've never heard anyone talk about their lack of access to a gas stove.
2: Well, some of that has been driven by the fact, too, that, that gas stoves right now have kind of popped up yes. as a source of controversy in environmental policy discussions in terms of the impact or environmental footprint that gas stones, gas stoves have kind of – you know, collectively throughout the the country and the world. So I, I think it's probably at least in part sort of a a sort of a smarty response to to that kind of signaling contempt for these discussions about the environmental impact of gas stoves.
0: All right. And, you know, a member of our own. Uh, State legislata- or regional legislative delegation, Adam Botana, has kind of been taking the lead in terms of making individual budget requests when it comes to recovery from Hurricane Ian. Um, he's seeking $51 million to repair the Sanibel Causeway, $50 million to restore Lee County's working waterfront, $17 million for resiliency upgrades to Sanibel sewer system, another $18 million for beach renourishment, and $25 million to replace Fort Myers Beach Town Hall. Um, again, given what seems like uh, a having money to spare, and the severity of the storm damage here, do you think it's likely Botana's colleagues will acquiesce to these requests? I, I would think I, I so. I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: I think uh, maybe not all of them, or, or maybe not all to the, the budget uh, that is being requested. But, uh, yeah, I think that that uh, is – and I think that we have already seen some efforts at some – immediate response, uh, particularly, for instance, the bridge to Sanibel.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So maybe a bright spot there for us locally here. Yeah. Uh, One bill that's advancing is this controversial plan to shield businesses, healthcare providers, and insurance companies from potentially costly lawsuits. Uh, During December's special session, lawmakers eliminated one-way attorney fees requiring insurers to pay the attorney fees of plaintiffs who were successful in their suits. Um, but this is this is just taking that another step further.
1: It, frankly, is directed at uh, the uh, legal profession yes. and uh, the targeting uh, such as attorney fees, uh, and this would uh, really touch off a real lobbying debate and discussion. I think uh, over uh, the injury factor uh, and individuals being able to go to court for. I th- I think this is. Perhaps directed at one particular law firm that uh, here in in Florida that uh, advertises itself as a uh, fairly
2: large
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, and I would also add here that the this this particular package of, of tort reforms or so-called tort reforms directed toward you know the insurance industry especially are designed or you know to assist the insurance industry I think it's um, you, you know, it's very narrow in its focus, and it's decidedly steering away from the area of insurance reform that's probably facing, you know, or, or you know, hitting us with the most dire kind of prospects, which is a hurricane or disaster-related property insurance premium. Issues which are likely to explode this year and in the coming years. I mean, we've had problems for a number of years now in terms of insurance carriers leaving the market or becoming insolvent. But now they're projecting, I think, an, on average about 40 percent hikes in the average uh, you know, residential uh, property insurance premium, premium this coming year. And nothing that they, they did in that December session, special session, is, is going to address that. And that's the major problem, I think, now when it comes to, you know, sort of the insurance situation in Florida. Yeah, I think that, that uh, Roger
1: really hit it, uh, one, the, the uh, accelerated uh, increase in fees. And also one of the lack of response on the part of uh, many insurance carriers, Tui at and and frankly, I can uh, attest to one of those. I had a, a relatively minor claim, thankfully, but uh, never heard back or still have not heard back from yeah. the insurance company. Yeah,
0: well, I can <laughs> I can talk with you about that off-air because I've got a similar story. Um, another hot button issue um, or proposal, rather, would eliminate the unanimous jury requirement for, that Florida currently has in order to impose the death penalty. Um Is this largely riding on the coattails of outrage following the result of the Parkland mass shooters trial? I I
1: think so, yeah. This is at least what it has been billed at is to reduce the – or at least the recommendation to reduce the majority of of 12 jurors to eight. And, uh, again, I I think that is a part of this – social agenda uh, approach that the governor has taken. Uh, clearly his regist- uh, his legislation to uh, uh, rest- reduce the unanimous jury uh, approach.
0: I, I see how it could resonate with people on an emotional level, but when you consider that Florida leads the nation when it comes to exonerations, i.e., how many times we've gotten it wrong and yes. put innocent people on death row, I mean, is this a concerning move?
2: Yeah, lowering the bar and expediting the sort of the process through which somebody can be, you know, you know, steered toward toward execution or capital punishment in a state like Florida with its sordid history is. is is ill-advised. But I think this is one of those issues, again, where it's it's politically strategic in this setting uh, for, for this to be proposed. I mean, it's a way, even if you think about it with respect to the Marjorie Stoneman uh, Douglas High School shooting an outcome there, I think it's a way of even steering that controversy in a direction that that favors the Republican Party rather than the the Democratic Party because it's no longer about... Uh, gun control legislation or reform, it's about capital punishment. Yeah, justice. Uh, yeah, justice. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's strategic. I mean, I understand why they would do it. I just think it's ill-advised.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're just joining the show, Florida's annual legislative session begins next week. And ahead of the start, we're getting a preview of what to watch for with FGCU political scientists, Dr. Roger Green and Dr. Peter Bergerson. Again, if you'd like to comment on our conversation or engage with fellow listeners, we're on Facebook at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So I wanted to shift gears and and kind of look at education. First, we have this massive expansion of Florida's school choice voucher program proposed. If passed, all school age children will be eligible for a voucher to use for private school tuition, homeschool, or other education-related services. This seems like something that's been in the works of, or at least a goal of conservatives for quite some time.
2: Yeah. I mean it's it's just it's it's amplifying steps that have been taken in the past and measures that have been enacted. I mean, at least in the past there was there were these you know, some somewhat limits on eligibility in terms of lower or middle income families or the disabled, but now it's just removing, stripping away all of those limits so that, you know children from the wealthiest families would have the same eligibility and and but what i guess kind of caught me by surprise i was expecting this to happen with regard to the use of vouchers with no income limits at private schools but but the homeschooling the Mm -hmm. homeschooling dimension of it actually kind of took me by surprise
1: yeah it appears to me that what is going to be developed here is a dual public education system yeah The traditional one that that we know where public education uh, is at the local level. And now we're going to see here in Florida uh, uh, public education uh, by voucher systems or uh, private schools or uh, charter schools. And and that's going to – it clearly is directed towards that. And the impact of that is going to be taking money away. Yeah. So some estimates of as uh, much as four billion dollars away from the traditional public schools. Subsequently, you're going to have a, a again a dual system.
0: Is, yeah. is there something disingenuous about the argument coming from supporters of this? You quoted that four billion dollar impact cost. Um, but the state's official estimate is two hundred million dollars. Yeah. That's so that's that's an
2: enormous divergence. I mean, yeah. the the you know, the state and legislative proponents, I mean the the difference between their their projection and the projections made by you know other other organizations that that's a huge divergence. I mean, however you might want to kind of dissect the you know the 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 basis for each of those or their methodologies, the fact that the divergence is that huge, should, I, I mean, should be a uh, cause for alarm.
0: Well, I think Monroe County School Board member, uh, Sue Woltanski, said it well. She said, quote, It's nonsensical to believe that half of the families currently paying to send their children to these private schools will not apply to get this free money. Of course they of will. Of course they will. End yeah. quote. Yeah. That's why they're rich. <laughs> right. That's yes. why their families are wealthy. <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and one of the other issues is that dealing with the education is a proposal to, have school superintendents elected uh, as opposed to appointed, which again would further politicalize uh, the agenda, the uh, curriculum, uh, teaching. uh, I mean, not that there isn't politics already there, but this would really open it up to... A pretty obvious uh, public uh, discussion.
0: And in addition to more, uh, you know, steeper term limits for school board members, Desantis is just openly supporting those being political races. Yes, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and sticking with K through 12 again for a moment, a bill filed just this week would bar instruction about sexual orientation and gender identity through eighth grade. Which is expanding the you know parental rights and education law dubbed by critics don't it's like don't, don't say gay two point you know critics like Democratic state representative Anna Eskamani have likened it to forcing parents to co-parent with Governor DeSantis. Um, which, it's just interesting how they shape it as a parental rights issue, but depending on what side of these issues you stand on, it's it's taking away parental rights. Yes,
2: mm. yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, previously it was, you know, the, the ban extended from kindergarten through third grade. Now it's, you know, being pushed up to eighth grade. And I think the Senate version of the bill also kind of strengthens some of the means through which... Books can be removed from school libraries yeah. if they, you know, touch upon these forbidden topics. So, um, yeah, it, it's
1: yeah. this is really an appeal to the the those who see the society being dominated by quote unquote woke interests. And, yeah. um this this really has a uh, an appeal to to a very small but vocal and. Uh, organized political group
0: all right well, well sticking with that topic but shifting into higher education we have house bill 999 proposing more restrictions on what professors can and cannot teach it eliminates majors and minors even tangentially related to gender studies critical race theory intersectionality tenured professors having their employment status reviewed uh, every five years or, or really at any time or at any time mm. um and having a school's president and board of trustees having sole authority over hiring of new faculty. Um, does this concern you not just as political scientists but as career educators in higher ed?
1: It sure does for me. And um, it. it I, I think it's such of a dramatic change uh, and it would present uh, at a minimum of a bureaucratic nightmare to think that uh, – Every faculty member is going to have to be approved by by the board of uh, trustees. That uh, and even worse uh, limit the ability of or address this question of academic freedom.
2: Yeah, I Uh, and I I think I, I mean any 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 capable you know forthright qualified university president I think would be horrified at the idea of of you know. Having the, the organization designed this way with respect to faculty hiring decisions, I mean, yes, the the bill would allow the, a, board, a university's board of trustees to delegate formal authority for faculty hiring to a university president, but it's still at the level of sort of a presidential recommendation on who should be hired. And, and so the, the formal power still rests with the Board of Trustees, but some of the other measures as well. I mean, you know, something that isn't discussed quite so much, in addition to the ban on majors or minors that in any fashion seem to deal with critical race and ethnic studies or gender studies or intersectionality, there's also this provision that would, that would in very vague wording, ban... At the general education level, uh, courses that that have any curriculum that uh, gives students uh, what's the wording? It's uh, unproven theoretical or exploratory information. That's one of the that's one of the bans that's built into this. And I mean, I, that's as a, I thought that's what college. Well, was. yeah. I mean, <laughs> as, as a as a higher educator, <laughs> as a career higher, higher higher educator, I'm just thinking, well, what what exactly does that mean, and how what exactly would you teach in a general education and for those listeners who don't know what that means it typically means uh, freshman and sophomore classes sort of introductory or survey level classes I don't even know what exactly you would teach I mean um, most things in addition to sort of the idea that that higher education is supposed to be cultivating a sense of critical thinking and and exploration, it's also the case that most things you would present to students, you know, technically speaking, they are still theoretical or exploratory. Right. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, so I don't I don't
0: know. Like are how, we going with a scientific scientific definition of the word theory? Yeah, I, I, I know. know. So
2: I don't even know. I don't even know. You know, the state has already a number of years ago mandated, th- you know, through, you know, the civic literacy requirement that all you know, state university or college students have to complete, in addition to some other things, uh, a course either in American national government or in U.S. history since 1877 designed to kind of give them a an understanding of American national government and politics and, you know, constitutional law. Well, I don't know how you could even teach a basic introductory course in American national government without getting into material that somebody could Characterize as as theoretical or exploratory. Yeah, yeah. and
1: it really, uh, in in a, perhaps a broader focus, is it really puts a target here on oh, yeah. uh, higher education in Florida, as well as as uh, elementary and secondary education as well. It it raises the national debate and discussion, uh, and the question of. You know, who would want to uh, be a college president under those circumstances? Who would want to be a faculty member uh, in in that uh, political environment, Uh, not an academic environment, but frankly, just a political environment?
0: Well, we have just a few minutes left here, but uh, I couldn't let you go without touching on this defamation legislation. Uh, attempting to make it easier to sue media outlets and target the use of anonymous sources, um, DeSantis has long been an outspoken critic of what he calls legacy media. But I'm hearing from organizations like the First Amendment Foundation the implications of this are much broader. Um, this could make it easier to sue bloggers, talk radio hosts, um, kind of basically everybody. Everybody. Um can you say more about this? Well, yeah, I mean, it's look, I mean, one of the
2: one of the main features of this of of this proposed legislation is that it would it would challenge the principles that were, you know, set forth in this famous uh, kind of landmark Supreme Court case a number, you know, decades ago, New York Times Company versus Sullivan that among other things, uh, kind of established the principle that, that for a, a lawsuit to prevail against a, a you know, journalist or a media company for reporting they've done where there's some allegation that it has damaged or defamed someone's reputation, you, you have the plaintiff has to be able to establish that there was malice, actual malice involved, and that it can't just be some kind of some inadvertent or peripheral um, issue or quibbling about about what was reported, so it would trem- It would greatly lower the bar for uh, what a plaintiff would have to demonstrate in order to prevail, and it would have a chilling impact on certainly on investigative journalism, especially in the political realm, or when trying to investigate organized crime or corruption. Oftentimes, the use of anonymous sources is essential. Because the sources, if their identities were made public, would be at dan- You know, they would be at risk. So, right. uh, it would have a chilling impact.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, well, that is about all the time we have for today's show. But maybe if we just have a minute here, um, I, I, I know again Senator Pasadomo has been supporting this Live Local Act. It comes with a price tag of seven hundred eleven million dollars to provide incentives for private investment in affordable housing. Given the severity of the affordable housing crisis, not just in Southwest Florida but beyond, I just don't get a sense that this pro-development preemption bill is really going to do that much.
2: No, I don't think it'll do much at all. And and among other things, it it they fold into a you know state-level preemption of of, you know, local rent controls yes. or height restrictions. It's
0: zoning, yeah. You know, yeah.
2: I mean, it, it encroaches on local discretionary authority over zoning. So they, they folded a bunch of things in that have nothing to do with addressing the affordable high, housing crisis in Florida.
0: Right. Well, that is all the time we have, but I want to thank my guests ahead of next the start or next week's start of the 23 regular legislative session here in Florida. We've been exploring what to expect with Florida Gulf Coast Uni- University political scientists, Dr. Roger Green and Dr. Peter Bergerson, gentlemen. Always great to have you in studio. Thanks for
2: having me, John. Yeah, thanks, John. It's been great.
0: And our show today was produced by Jared Gonzalez and yours truly. Our director is Richard Chin-Kui. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, and PR for Southwest Florida.